Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Hi, Lizzie. Hey, Sam. Oh my God, I'm so excited for today's episode. I feel like there needs to be like confetti or like balloons or like fireworks or something. Yeah, I I say I'm excited for today's episode. I say I'm excited for every episode, but it's our podcast, so we <laughs> we pick the episodes. Spirit fingers. Yeah, we, we love... All movies, but this movie has been Ugh. presented to us, and people have been asking for us to do it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited to talk about it. It's going to be such a juicy episode. I can feel it in my bones. Oh my god! Yeah, I think God made this movie <laughs> just for me. And she other did people, a good job. Yeah, yeah happen to have seen it, which is really convenient. <laughs> um, but before we jump into Bound, we want to give a huge shout out to our lovely patrons, those folks supporting us over on Patreon.com. A uh, bunch of tears there. Bunch of cool perks like audio episodes, voting rights on our special fan service episodes, as well as our main feed episodes. So if that sounds cool to tell us what to do, you can do that at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. But if not, we're just glad you're listening to Bound today. And it's a very special episode because we have a very special guest. Shona. We have Laura Hill in the studio with us today. Yay. Hi, y'all. Hello. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, I'm so excited to have you. Would, you. would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Of course. So my name is Laura Hill. I'm a filmmaker, film worker, writer, and reformed film bro, uh, <laughs> local here in New Orleans. Um, I am a trans woman and a lesbian, and I use she, her pronouns. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. If you uh, recognize Laura's voice, it's because she did a great little sound clip for our Scream episode. You sounded like a real scholar. You know your shit. I feel like you and I always end up at the party, like in the corner, like, and then if you look back at the filmography, <laughs> like you can pull into the depths of film knowledge. And I love that. That's me. <laughs> yeah. So you're perfect to be here. <laughs> and you felt really resolute about this this movie when we talked about having you on. You really wanted to do Bound. Is there a reason you felt very strongly about this film? I love this film in general. I love it, love it, love it. And I recently rediscovered how much I loved it because um, they were showing it here for a free screening around Southern Decadence. And I went with some queer friends and I forgot how sexy it is and how fun it is. And the crowd ate it up and was wild. And you know, not only do I love this movie, but I also love these filmmakers who are uh, Lana and Lily Wachowski, who, if you're not familiar with, are the writers and directors of not only this movie, but of The Matrix and all of the following sequels of that. And they are both trans women, which a lot of people don't realize who these filmmakers are. Like, they might know The Matrix. They may have, even if they haven't seen it, they're aware of it, but they don't know that that film is queer or that its filmmakers are queer and trans. And it's something that was part of my journey with realizing who I was and coming into myself was looking back on my life and realizing how important these filmmakers and their films were to me Mm -hmm. um, and how intrinsic their queerness was to their films, Uh, not just in Bound, but in so many other cases um, that I'm sure we can talk about on future episodes. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah they, they really have such a good and strong vision for their stories. Like The Matrix is unlike any of their other movies, and Bound is so unlike yes. all the other films that they've created. I mean, they produced V for Vendetta, which also feels super gay. There's like a, um, there's like a vignette in V for Vendetta with two lesbians that I was obsessed with when I was younger. It makes <laughs> me so happy to know they had anything to do with that. But yeah, as you're saying, like, I'm a gay person, a film nerd, and I didn't realize that the Wachowski sisters were trans until very recently. 
And I mean, I'm interested to see how that perspective can lend to watching their movies again for the mm-hmm. second time. I think it's really poignant. I, Lily, when she was, um, Lily Wachowski, she accepted a GLAAD award in 2017. And while she was accepting, she said, there's a critical eye being cast back on Lana and I's work because of our transness. This is a cool thing because this is an excellent reminder that art is never static. I love that. And there's something to be said about The Matrix and its longevity, which we're not here to talk about The Matrix, but it is like, I think, their most iconic work. Um, But like their perspective is so unique. And there's something to be said about a film that can be so specific to its genre and specific in its references and in its language, which Bound is excellent at creating its own language from pieces of other films Mm -hmm. in a way that's super original. And I think how they work together, I'm just so terribly interested to know, like, how they parse up the work, you know? Like, does one sister focus on one aspect or the acting? Or or that always interests me, too, because, like, the Coen brothers, like, how do you— how do you work with a sibling, someone you've known your entire life? Yeah. Um, they're just such an interesting team. And, yeah, I think it's interesting that their transness is not, like, common knowledge because, for me, I'm like, yeah, they're the Wachowski sisters. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's just funny to think that that news didn't travel as, like, wildfire like I thought it would. Yeah. The next time you hear a shitty right-wing dude, like, talk about <laughs> taking the red pill yeah. or, like— fighting back against the Matrix or whatever, remind them where that came from, that they they stole that from trans women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just another movie that people on the wrong side of the aisle take so incorrectly, like Fight Club. We're like, uh, this is actually a critique. This is like a satire. This is not like we aren't praising masculinity in this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if this is a good time, on on this note, uh, I did want to make a note to mark an occasion because um, today on the day that we're recording this is actually the end of Trans Awareness Week, uh, which is a week-long kind of celebration of marking of just like recognizing trans people as a community and um, and educating people that may not know very much about us to, you know, be proud and be out and open. But the last day of that week always culminates in Trans Day of Remembrance, which is when we recognize the people within our community who have passed tragically since the last day of remembrance. And oftentimes, um, many of these um, people in our community have been killed, like it's um, have been murdered. Um, I have some statistics pulled up to read off, and these statistics come from the Human Rights Campaign. So, of the dozens of trans, non-binary, and gender-diverse people killed in the United States this year, 88% were people of color, 54% were black, transgender women, 47% were killed by family member, friend, or partner, Uh, and this is in the case where we know who the the killer was, Mm -hmm. um, where we were able to identify them. And one and two were misgendered or dead named by authorities in the press. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So it's just, it's a moment to remember those in the community that we have lost because we are such a small community and the environment for us, especially in the last couple of years as Republicans and the conservative party in our United States have continued to push back against the strides that we have made as a community in society and in government and to just be just to live our lives and be who we are and be happy um, that they have continued to fight to make it a much more hostile place for us to be. And this violence, which is not new, but is very much a part of that culture and that environment um, that has been created for us. 
if y'all have the time, I do want wish to read off the names of the lost. Please do. Yes. Benko Brown, Coco Dadal, Ashley Burton, Tasia Woodland, Torchigita, Cheshe Ashanti Henderson, Maria Jose Rivera Rivera, Zaki Imanit Weaho. I apologize um, if I butcher these some of these pronunciations. Unique Banks, Casey Johnson, Jasmine Star Mack, Chanel Perez Ortiz, Ashia Davis, Lakendra Andrews, London Price, Lisa Love, Dominique Dupree, Ani Johnson, Sherlyn Marjorie, China Long, Louise Angel Diaz Castro, Yoko, Thomas Tom Tom Robertson, Devani J. Ray Johnson, Camden Ryder, and Jacob Williamson. This is not the full list. These are only those in the U.S. that we've been able to confirm. Mm -hmm. But, and we also acknowledge all those who remain unreported, unacknowledged, or unknown. Thank you. Thank you for that acknowledgement. Um, yeah, there's there's not enough space made for those individuals. And if all we can do right now is just take a short amount of time to appreciate them and the lives that they've lived, um, it's the least that we can do. And I appreciate you bringing that to us today. Yeah, thank you so much. And for also just being here to share your opinions on film with us, something that teaches us all, expands all of our minds and, you know, gets conversations like this going because... At the end of the day, our voice is really important and your voice is really important and Sam's and Lee's and all of ours. And we're glad to bring all of our voices together on this silly little podcast because these little things do matter. Um, so, yeah, thank you so yeah, much for taking that moment. Yeah, thank you so much. Lovely. I um, don't have much more to say on the Wachowski sisters because I think that this work really speaks for itself. Um, but they are also lesbians. And, of course, they are because this is a very realistic <laughs> love scene that's yes, included like, in this film. We, we should have known. We should have known <laughs> the whole time, like from the beginning. It was obvious. As straight men did not make this movie. So, so obvious. Yeah, no, this the sex scene in this film is, is great. Uh, they actually got... Uh, sex educator Susie Bright as um, kind of they didn't have this term back then but like an intimacy right. coordinator um, so oh my and god I that's know. so far in advance because even to this day intimacy coordinators aren't consulted on probably half the films that need them yeah and also it's Lesbian sex is very specific. It's not just like people going at each other. No scissoring. There, there is not as much scissoring as we are made to believe. <laughs> not as much scissoring. No, it was also just like extremely sexy. And I can always tell when something's for the male gaze because I end up watching it like kind of pulled in and I'm like my face all screwed up and I'm just like this was supposed to be hot but I feel really weird but in, <laughs> when I was watching this on my couch at 10 a.m. this morning for like the third time I was like I was like, whoo, I gotta turn the AC down. Like, the word you're looking for hot. is girl horny. Girl <laughs> horny. Oh my gosh. Like, trans women in particular are, especially if we've been on hormones long enough, uh, are in a unique position to know the difference between girl horny and boy horny. And this movie is girl horny. This is so, so horny. Girl oh horny. And it's 
Oh, they hit the nail on the head. Well, Susie Bright, the the sex educator who went on to be their intimacy coordinator, they sent her the script because they were big fans of her and they wanted That's her to... us. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. If you're Googling, yeah. <laughs> There's so many retroactive educator. gay flags <laughs> flying all over this film. Yeah. Uh, they wanted her just to be an extra in the film, and so they sent her the script, and she was like, I like it, but there's some gaps in description about the, like, lesbian sex. And she was like, I could come on as intimacy coordinator, and they were like, please. And oh so that's why treat. it seems so true to life. It seems so realistic. It's been heralded as, like, the best lesbian sex scene in cinema, and I think rightly so. So we'll talk a little bit more about how that scene came to be, but Susie Bright, great person, sex educator, like I mentioned. We could also catch her commentary in the documentary that does what we do here every week, but did it in an hour and 30 minutes, The Celluloid Closet. Uh, the Celluloid Closet, an yeah. absolute stone-cold classic documentary. Yeah, you can hear a commentary in that film as well, but... Oh my God, icon, cool. I know. Adding it to the list. Yeah, oh, you would love it. Oh, you, you would really love it. It's basically this podcast just like really, really smart, and they get to talk to Susan Sarandon <laughs> directly, so... Yeah, they have a direct line to Susan Sarandon, <laughs> which we don't. What's wrong uh, with our line to Susan Sarandon? Come on. <laughs> Uh, It will surprise no one that the Wachowski sisters were pressured to make this not as gay as it was and is now. But they they were asked to make the character of Corky into a man, which they declined. And eventually they were able to get this in production. Oh, I was going to say they very specifically like told like the studio heads that they gave that feedback. They said, we've seen that movie before. So many times. Could you imagine how boring that movie would be. Right. You lose so much by changing that one character, so much subtext, which hey. that's A. Hey. Hey. You Our said it. Word. You said the word. <laughs> I said it. Like, also, isn't this their first feature? It this is. This is their first feature. So so according to Joel Siv- Silver, who uh, worked also worked on the movie Assassins, which the Wachowski sisters wrote together. This is a movie starring Sylvester Stallone and Antonio Banderas. came out in 1995. Um, so jump, pre-bound. Pre-bound, gotcha. yes. Okay. Uh, that's how they got this gig and got you know some producers' attention to um, make something else. Joel Silver says that um, this film was sort of like an audition for them to make like bigger things, particularly The Matrix, which the Wachowski sisters, Lana in particular, has just flat out said he made up. Um, <laughs> so very patronizing, you know. Like, yeah. oh, we had Take to vet that. them to before they could do their right. own thing. We had to make sure that like you were legit and like we could actually do it, which it's just like it's obvious that they did. You know, <laughs> I read that as well, that they were saying that wasn't the case. They were like, we were concerned about making a really good movie and that's pretty much it. And uh, yeah, it is kind of patronizing to be like, and they had to audition with this movie about lesbians. And he didn't even know that they were women yet. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I just can't believe this is a first feature. It, it feels like it's, it's definitely one of those films that was edited before it was even shot. Like they know exactly where they want the camera, mm-hmm. every eyelash, every costume like it's really flawless and it has a lot of elements that i usually don't give a shit about like mafia movies sure i I understand that's a genre that's very popular but even though the second half has like markably less lesbian sex in it and therefore is not as good (laughs) i still was like super invested in the in, in the action um but yeah such an intentional film and i could feel the references to other works and other creators. Even if I didn't know the reference, I could feel the inspiration behind it. But like I was saying earlier, it never felt like they were copy pasting. It was like Mm -hmm. their own version of it Mm -hmm. in like a better, gayer, prettier 
darker way. Mm-hmm. Right. They specifically cited um, collaborating with Bill Pope, the cinematographer who also shot all of the Matrix films, oh. um, minus the newest one, but shot the original three Matrix films, uh, cited his love of comic books along with theirs, which specifically Frank Miller and Sin City. But also they use Billy Wilder in the neo-noir movies that he made, like Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard as like a reference point for uh, what they were hoping to do with this film. Yeah, pitch perfect. Seriously, no line, like the look is amazing, one, and then their ability to create such distinct voices with their dialogue. And the dialogue is my favorite part of this film. Yes. So we'll be hearing some very choice lines coming up soon. But without further ado, let's get into the movie. I had this image of you inside of me. Like a part of me. You're asking me to help you fuck over the mob. Violet, these people are serious. I love the score. The score is phenomenal, which it's the same same score as The Matrix. There are so many collaborators that they met on this film that ended up going on to make The Matrix. And as much as like the Wachowskis have such a creative vision and a through line through their films, like all of their films feel like them. This is the movie more than any others that like you can tell visually that the same people, like mm-hmm. visually, experientially, sonically, you can tell the same people that made this movie, not just the filmmakers, but the people, like the whole crew mm-hmm. also did The Matrix. Like it's such a clear through line in the production design, the music, the cinematography, it's all it's all there, like the connective tissue of it. I'm sure the costume designer too cuz it was just one thing I could not get my uh, mind off of it was yeah. how perfect everyone was dressed so exactly what their little character would wear the little green hat on Gino the little Chanel black sweater that Violet wears in the beginning mm-hmm. the lipstick the lipstick oh my god everything that Corky wears played by Gina Gershon okay that, that white tank top it's, oh my it is the most butch lesbian thing <sighs> in the world it needs to be in a museum. If it's not in a museum already, it needs to be. It's outstanding. Um, we could talk a little bit. Also, also, all of the leather. Lots of leather. Lots of leather. You are reading my mind. There's a scene <laughs> where they're making out and you just hear the leather going. Yes, <laughs> in the car. I remember being like, <laughs> they could have just taken that out and put like strings and they did not. It's no, it's it's part of the experience. It's, it's so, important. Yeah. There's even at one life. point like a close up of someone's eyes i think it's caesar's and like he opens his eyes and you hear like the that's like eyeball i'm like what the fuck you guys y'all are we're in the all of the whooshes which i've been told they put a whoosh they wanted gina kershaw to feel like a cat like when she appeared on camera and so anytime she walks past camera there's a whoosh (gasps) in the sound design I need someone to follow me around. And as I enter and exit places, just whoosh me around the grocery store. I love the idea of the Foley artists like staying up all night, pulling their hair out. Like, we got to get the whooshes right. <laughs> Every scene she walks in, we got a whoosh. Oh, love it. Oh, God. I'm but like starry eyed by this fucking movie. I could gush days for days because Corky, played by Gina Gershon, and Violet, played by Jennifer Tilly, are both people I want to be and want yes. to fuck. Thank God. 
Inside of you are two lesbian wolves. <laughs> and they're having sex. <laughs> they're having sex. One of them had a vision of you inside of them, in fact. Oh, my God. I love that line. And they just, like, oh, whisper it throughout the film. Jennifer Tilly was one of my first cinema crushes, admittedly not for this film. What movie was it? What movie you, you was think it? I'm going to say Liar Liar. Oh, because that's how Because I assume that's yours. I, it's weirdly yes. it was Bride of Chucky. That's the um, other one that I was going to guess. Yeah. yeah. It had to be. I love when that, people are mean to me. Jennifer Tilly is camp. She's sexy, mm-hmm. but she is camp. And that is something Don Mangini knows. hundred percent. Jeez. For, for the Chucky movies. We we were so spoiled in the like 90s and 2000s because we got so many incredible actresses that were so camp. Like her, Parker Posey. Uh, they deliver lines. Like if I read them on paper, I'm like, I could not imagine the delivery that they choose to give. Incredible. Her voice. Her voice. Oof. The most iconic, like next to um, next to Jennifer Coolidge, most iconic sex kitten voice. Oh, makes me want a hot dog real bad. <laughs> like, and she's laying it on thick in this movie. Oh, she's laying yeah. it on so thick mm-hmm. for all of these men. Not mainly the men, but like she's definitely putting on an act for them. But she lets it out a little bit, you know, for for the rest of us. Oh yeah. And their characterization is so perfect from the moment that they lay eyes on each other. They know what's up. Gina Gershon's character of Corky, they meet and I wouldn't even say they meet. They like eye fuck each other in the <laughs> elevator really quickly at the, at the start of the film. Uh, it's not the opening shot of the movie, but it's the first real scene we get mm-hmm. with them is them meeting in the elevator. Mm-hmm. And instant connection. They see each other. They know like what the other what the other is. Yeah. Violet walks out of the elevator and you see Corky just like look her up and down. And then just like shake her head and then continue forward. And as you mentioned, yeah, the very beginning of the film starts with like a foreshadowing moment where you hear like um, really poignant lines from the rest of the film spattered over seeing Corky tied and up in a closet. We learn quickly that uh, Corky is an ex-con who will be repairing kind of like the handyman of this apartment building. And that Violet is the partner to a man, Caesar, who is tied in with the mafia or the business, as he calls it. The business. The, the business. That's how you know they're in the mafia Gotta when they say do some my shit. Business. <laughs> yeah. And um, Caesar is played by Joe Pantoliano. Just say Joey Pants. It's more fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Lee's been calling him all day, Joey Pants. Joey Pants. I love Joey Pants. I think he has the kind of line delivery of a John Leguizamo where they're like yeah. enunciating really well. It does something for my brain. But he was also in another Rakowski sisters film. He was in Matrix. Yes, he was in the Matrix. He played Cypher, who is sort of a um, secondary villain in that movie. He does also appear in the TV show Sense8 that they created. Mm, oh, uh, cool. He is the father of, um, I believe Will is the character's name, who's a Chicago PD mm. police officer, former cop. Uh, you might also remember him as being incredibly annoying in Memento. Uh, he's just good at being annoying, and that's what he does in this movie as well. I was going well. to bring up Memento because, <laughs> like we talked about, you know, the opening scene in this movie is sort of like a tease for things later. Seeing it's, uh, yeah. We see Corky tied up in a closet. Whose closet it, it is is very important to the film and to the, the subtext. Yes, and metaphorically, yes. Mm-hmm. she's in a closet. But, yeah, it's it uses a narrative device that I feel like a lot of other movies that came out during the 90s, like these neo-noir mashups like Pulp Fiction and Memento, mm-hmm. as you just said, which I adore both of those films. Memento Lovely. is the movie that made me a cinephile, made me wow. love movies. And this movie does not get talked about for using the same kind of temporal devices of like jumping back and forth in the structure to like tease things that are going to happen later on um, within this genre. That's a great comparison. I 
excuse me, I felt like those films, both Bound and Memento, made me feel the same things. I think that they're also like a true mark of the director in both cases. I think Christopher Nolan, in my personal opinion, peaked with Memento. Uh, you guys can find yes. more in the comments. No, 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 no. <laughs> yep. He was, we used to be homeboys, but um, I'm not a boy anymore. And, <laughs> and yeah, yeah I, I've kind of fallen off with him a little bit. Um yeah, it's just his films don't hit the same way as they do. I do think feel like Memento is sort of his crowning achievement. Mm-hmm. Is yes. that not his first film? It's his second film. <laughs> Peaked at his second film. <laughs> <laughs> just stopped. And just kept on rolling through it. Yeah. He tried it with Tenet, but I was not having that. Tenet is ass. <laughs> Tenet is like a dumb person trying to write a smart James Bond movie. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. We read a review. We just went and saw Thanksgiving, that like slasher that just came out. And we read a review on Letterboxd that was like, this movie was written in crayon and then directed <laughs> by that crayon. <laughs> I was like, couldn't have said it better myself. Read that bitch. <laughs> also, pulling way back into the conversation, the elevator scene for me was such a delight visually because of course we're meeting these two super hot women but i love that they look so similar they're like almost two sides of the same coin like their hair is similar in length they're both in all black it's, it's a, always interesting to it's like, a femme and her emotionally support mask <laughs> yeah, exactly and it, i just love a movie that will kind of like jennifer's body present you with two protagonists that uh, kind of like are yin and yang but also twins in a lot of weird ways and Mm -hmm. the characters even talk about that like in the beginning of the film corgi has a hard time seeing the similarities between the two but by the end they're like there's no differences between us Mm -hmm. that's such a great storytelling technique to show two people who could had if they chosen lived very similar lives but there is something that made both of them fork in different directions and we learn more about those events in this film and we understand why they They're making their clothing choices or their inflection even, you know, a little bit different. I think that's really exciting to see. Also, the casting, there's been rumors about who was cast first and in what role. But there is a rumor that uh, Jennifer Tilly was initially cast as Corky. Oh, interesting. And then the character of Violet, the actress who was supposed to play that character, fell out. So then she was moved into Violet's role when Gina Gershon became available for the film. And Gina Gershon has said that her agent at the time told her not to take the film due to the lesbian content. But she did. Of course. She did anyways and then fired the agent. Let's uh, go. (laughs) Which uh, Jennifer Tilly still to this day says that this is probably one of her favorite, like her favorite role that Uh, she's ever played. Same thing for Joe Pantoliano. He says this is his favorite role that he's ever played. Joey Pants, just like how... Amanda Seyfried has said Jennifer's Body is her favorite film she's ever done. Let them be lesbians. All these actresses just want to be lesbians. They want to be directed on how to kiss a girl the best way possible by someone who was informed. Don't we all? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. So we learned that Corky is an ex-con who served five years in prison for theft and robbery or Um, robbery. Redistribution of wealth. Yes, important. She's great. She doesn't. She's a... Very few words, but her words are very choice. A uh, quick question. Yes. What the fuck is Corgi short for? I don't like for- the name Corgi. Corgella? I'm so sorry. That's Corgina? my only note. Cork has Cork- to be a nickname. She had to have gotten it from somebody. Because she's like a little Corgi dog. She's but it's spelled like a, a wine cork. Corky. 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 Oh, I thought it was Corgi, like the 
Queen's dogs. <laughs> well, I actually... No, Corky, like Corky Romano, oh. you know, that classic Chris Kattan movie that everyone <laughs> oh. loves. Yes. And oh, when yes. I see her, I think Chris Kattan. Every time, <laughs> without fail. Uh, and I love the character of Violet because she makes quick work of this butch lesbian. She knocks on the door first day with some coffee, and I have to show you guys that scene because it's just perfect. I am so in awe of people who can fix things. My dad was like that. We never had anything new. Whenever anything was broken, he would just open it up, tinker with it a little bit, and fix it. His hands were magic. Someone described this movie as wet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that reminds me that the bar that Corky goes into... Called the watering the hole. Watering the watering hole. The what kind of hole? Water. <laughs> Fucking yeah, it's certainly a watering hole when Corky shows up. Because damn, uh, they're like trying to out hot each other in the scene, and they're just looking at each other like. And she's coming on to her hard. Violet yes. is coming on to her so hard. Like that first shot you showed, like with all the negative space, where she's literally like pushing her further to the other side of the frame. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's I I love it so much. And I don't remember if I saw the shot in here, but there's so many shots in general. And I think there is like a shot in this scene that shows like this intense close up of Gina Gershon's hand. Oh, yeah. There's so much stuff with hands. People who have a thing for hands would get a lot out of this movie. But I think Jimmy. Yo, Tompian, girl. (laughs) And I think it's so masterfully done. The lesbians that gave us this film know what the fuck they're doing because a woman's hands, especially if you're a lesbian, people's hands that's their dick yeah and so they mm. sh- there's so many inserts of Corky's hands like working hard mm-hmm. like slowly twisting the pipe to yep. get her earring out the watering pipe mm-hmm. and the sound design of that again this movie is wet like yes. that wet. that scene that scene one example of many in this mm-hmm. film of like of demonstrating that like just like no like we're deep into feminine sexuality like women loving women women fucking women mm-hmm. and also another thing i love about this scene is you know it's subtextuality is for us like you know we're sweating like we are we're <laughs> in it we are turned oh no on. like so i watched the, my last two screenings were both with an audience of other queer people, particularly trans girls, and they we went wild. We were that chat was popping <laughs> off like everyone was screaming. <sighs> girl horny, girl horny <laughs> as fuck. More girl horny than the era's fucking opening night movie <laughs> event. Um, <laughs> but like, I also like how in your face it is, like. It's like, hey, straight people, these are two lesbians. Mm-hmm. Like, don't you forget it. Here's them eye-fucking the shit out of each other. But then, like, if you look, there's, like, a couple of little, like, deeper wings that I think come up earlier in the film, like, in the elevator scene, like, the tattoo on Corky's shoulder being a labrys, which mm-hmm. is a classic 70s emblem of female and lesbian empowerment during the sexual revolution of that time. Um, and then... Even just simple things like Violet saying, oh, Corgi, uh, I brought you some coffee. I figured you liked it black. Uh, that just feels like a her inviting her to be like, hey, I, I see you. Like, I know you. I know what kind of gal you are. And then also being like, oh, you're just like my dad, like the hands. And you're probably really good at fixing stuff, huh? Oh, you have a truck? Mm-hmm. Like, she's basically saying like, hey, lesbian. Hey, lesbian. Yes. Hey, lesbian. Like, Hi, I mommy. see you. Yeah. Hi, mommy. Hi, mommy. Hey, daddy. <laughs> and the dialogue is important. Imp- incredible as you're saying and and 
fucking Violet has so much fucking game because even as she leaves, she still has game. She's just like, return that whenever you want. She gives her an invitation to see her again that she'll have to return. I'm sorry. This character is my kryptonite. Oh, Violet could literally, I would kill for her. Jessica Rabbit who? If yeah. this line was, <laughs> if these lines were delivered by any other actress, it would just seem over the top. And I love. She eats, she eats so much mm-hmm. no in crumbs. this movie. Like left nothing Nothing. Nothing. And then, because, like, Gina Gershon's also over here, like, serving her fucking hot mask, like, Shane Shane. from the L word, little titties off. And I'm still like, Jennifer Tilly. Jennifer Tilly. Like, did she invent lipstick lesbian? Like, (laughs) was she the first lipstick lesbian? Because she's, like, the perfect in control and somehow soft and sweet at the same time. Oh, God. Like, Yes. Perfect. I just do want to take a quick detour really quick. The Watering Hole, another fictional lesbian place that I really want to visit along with the planet. This is my favorite bar in the world. It's the most accurate lesbian bar on on film, Mm -hmm. period. And I think this could be one of those things that you'd see on the editing room floor because there's nothing that is said in this scene that's particularly important to the plot. But I think... The fact that they included this scene and they really thought out what a lesbian bar would look like in this area, in this time and space, is so beautiful. And the patrons look like real fucking lesbians. And um, Jennifer Tilly had said as much in an interview and was criticized later about this particular bar that it's not just full of like conventionally attractive women and like models – but people that look like lesbians and people were like, were well, you saying lesbians aren't conventionally attractive? Right. But the answer is yes, because the conventions are for straight people. Exactly. Right. So mm-hmm. no, they're not conventionally attractive, mm-hmm. you know? Amen. That's the point I was trying to convey when Lizzie said they are so similar in stature and characteristics, but they're so different as, as individuals. I mean, Violet and Corky that you see Corky has spent... It seems like her entire life deviating from the conventional standards of beauty, whereas the character of Violet has had to lean into those standards to survive. And they're both totally valid forms of living. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to see Corky in a place where she feels really comfortable with people that look like her. And the patron that she makes an advance on is Susie Bright, the intimacy coordinator that we mentioned at the beginning. And I want that leather top that she is wearing. (sighs) Oh, my it's, God. It is everything. She's wearing this, like, dominatrix, like, top. It's it's like, is it a dress? But it comes around her neck, and she looks fantastic. I'm telling you, style icons, every piece. Even the dirty wife beater is a fucking style iconic piece. And I think this scene also really serves for the bumbling audience member who maybe came in to yeah. see this movie without knowing anything. And at this point... Maybe has never seen a lesbian before. Well, what <laughs> it, to drive home that fact. She's well, what really it does gay. is totally. like it removes all plausible deniability because even if you have two women coming on to each other as hard as they do in this movie, you could still have people be like, ah, but maybe they're just good friends. Exactly. You know, or, what, or whatever. Maybe they're just like, oh, they're friendship. And it's just like, no, no, here she is. She's going to a lesbian bar. Here's her meeting another ex. Mm-hmm. Here's like all the people being familiar with her in like the most like clear cut fashion. Like just remove all yeah. doubt. And in a similar way, I think there is definitely an angle of this movie, particularly like I think that would be easy to take on a first viewing is to assume that Violet Violet is something of a femme fatale in this movie um, in terms of noir conventions. That's the role that she takes. And I definitely think there is a 
angle where you want, are wonder, watching this movie wondering how much you are meant to trust her mm-hmm. and how much you can trust her. Because that's, that's an entire element of like once they start hatching the plot and the plan, Cork is very clear. It's just like, I need to know someone really well. Are you going to fuck me? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> with, with some meaning me, there. Are you gonna <laughs> yes, but are you gonna are you gonna screw me over? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that is like a possibility hanging in the air. But like watching this movie again, it's just obvious from the beginning. Just like, oh no, like she's ride or die for yeah. her. Like from the beginning, there's no doubt. Mm-hmm. But you could definitely see like a straight audience coming in and like just having those questions and like having that plausible deniability of just like, Oh, unless it's spelled out to you in the most like break it out and break it down in crayons type thing, you know, um, they could wave it away be like, Oh, like that's not necessarily what that is. It's like, no, no, this, this is what it is. That's such a beautiful point. And I was kind of getting at that earlier in terms of like the idea of the subtext, like this movie is somehow written for straight audiences and queer audiences at the same time without be paid without being patronizing to either like there's all the little subtle fun winks like the watering hole and then there's the obvious like these two women are having sex like for all the spectrum of like okay we all are on the same page these two women are in love interesting each other and then like you're saying the idea of violet having to learn to trust corky and the other way around i love that they explicitly talk about it in the booth kind of early on in the film when Violet wants out. It's like if you bring those character questions to the forefront and have the characters briefly talk about them, like we're not left to wonder if that trust in the love between them is real. It's like we they're talking about it and then we're seeing it. So it's like, okay, great. We all understand. We're all on the same page. Like this two day lesbian relationship is much stronger than her five year bond with Caesar pants. Um, So you know, I, I think that's a really – they really took a fine-tuned brush to the script and not a single word is left deviated and they're somehow playing to the entire audience. It's mm-hmm. really just a work of art. Yeah, it's both very forward with the motivations without being with, – without me feeling as an audience member like they think I'm stupid, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I think they just fucking knock it out of the park. And the next day uh, – is this a porn? Violet drops her earring down the sink and Corky has to go over there it and fetch it. Very easily could be. Right? Oh, but you. how will I ever pay you? Oh, maybe I get you a drink. Here, sit down on my leather couch and we'll squeak <laughs> about for a bit. Yeah, so Corky responds to a call that Violet's dropped her earring down the sink and Corky makes quick work of retrieving that earring while we see, like, Corky use their dick, you know, like... On the wet pipes. On the wet pipes. And Violet tries to pay Corky. Corky declines. So Violet gets Corky a beer. And I'm going to show you the scene that follows. You seem uncomfortable. Do I make you nervous, Corky? No. Thirsty, maybe. Curious, maybe. That's funny. I'm feeling a little bit curious myself. That's a great tattoo. Beautiful Labrys. Are you surprised I know what it is? Maybe. Ew, they're drinking Bud Ice. Ugh, ew. Come on now. Is there a gay beer, though? There isn't. Um, (laughs) It's called wine. Yes. (laughs) Wine is the gay beer. It's called a vodka cranberry. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a cosmopolitan. Get the fruitiest drink you can. That is is gay culture. Uh, uh, 
Okay. Uh, Lizzie, would you describe that scene I just showed you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> My little legs are kicking <laughs> under the table. Um, so... Violet asks Corky, like, oh, well, I can't give any money for finding my earring. Maybe I can get you a drink. And she offers her a bud ice, which is just so great. And they sit down on the couch and are basically having another one of these, like, gently subtextual but also blatantly obvious conversations about how Violet knows Corky is gay and is coming on to her and is basically just waiting for Corky to, like, make any sort of move before she like jumps on top of her um and they yeah uh have a pretty uh, like excellent fan fiction worthy oral sex scene after this oh yeah yeah i i love violet's composure in this scene the like i bet you didn't think i knew what that meant and for the straight viewers who don't know what elaborus is like in in the audience watching this they're like well what does that mean you know they realize very quickly that they are not part of this like insular connection between the two of them. I think that's very powerful, even though it, that's a risk that might be alienating. Uh, like Lizzie touched on the labyrinths, the meaning of that. And we also touched on it in the Runaways episode yeah. because Joan Jett very famously has labyrinths tattoo. You don't necessarily need to spell out what the meaning is, but you need to indicate to audiences that it does have a meaning mm -hmm. that yeah. they don't necessarily know. And that connects these people. But that's the thing, like mm -hmm. it all is insinuation. And I think that the Wachowski sisters are so leading in where you're going, but you don't know you're there until you feel the tug of the leash, you know, yeah. like a few steps later and you're like, oh, wow, like I'm just in this magical <laughs> world. But they make it obvious enough that it cannot be misconstrued. Mm -hmm. These are lesbians, y'all. And if you weren't sure, the rest of the scene plays out as such. Violet shows Corky her tattoo, which is on her breast. Oh, yeah. What is it? I couldn't really tell. It looks like a black, um, all black, kind of like a flower. Oh, flower. Yeah, I think so. Um, I can't remember what specifically it is, but yeah, I think that's what it is. It's pretty dark in there, as Joe Pants would say. Uh, <laughs> and she's also just barely like trying to keep that nipple from slipping, like just yes. barely. Yeah. It's right above the nipple and she gets Corky to like hold her breast. And Corky says, what are you doing? And she says, isn't it obvious? I'm trying to seduce you. And Corky says, why? And she says, because I want to. I know you don't believe me, but I can prove it. And she takes Corky's hand in her mouth and then she puts it between her legs. And I know this is very hot and I know hands are very hot. I need one scene where Corky is washing their hands before fucking Violet. Personally, on a personal Virgo level. Chill. <laughs> Virgo chill. They show her hands looking absolutely covered in soot and paint and dirt the whole time, well, like grease and oil. Well, let's think about this as an actual stylistic choice. Mm -hmm. Who is she with? This like Caesar, the boss business, clean as fuck, rich guy. Maybe she wants something that's a little more real. Like what is her background? Like Caesar seems to insinuate she was just like a regular fucking girl working at a club. Like... Maybe she wants a taste of, like, the normal life and not this, like, perfectly manicured Italian mafia thing that Maybe she's got Maybe something a little on. more rough and tumble, but not violent in the way that, like, the world that she is in contains so much of with Caesar. Like, as much as this movie is, like, very, like, textually about, you know, lesbians and uh, women, loving women and stuff like that, it's also about masculinity and toxic masculinity yeah. and how its main method of expressing itself is violence. Yeah. Uh, and I think we're going to get into that a little bit more soon. But yes, yeah. Yeah. I think personally, all of the metaphorical stuff around that makes sense. But also, 
yeast infections. <laughs> like there's not, I, I know Issa Rae has spoken up uh, about something not so similar, but she was critiqued or her show Insecure was critiqued because they make a, an evident display of before they have sex, you can see the man putting on the condom or you see the condom wrapper in the shot after they have sex. And people have said like, why do you need to show that? Um, it takes us out of it or something. And she's like, well, we, people use condoms. Yeah, like right. it shouldn't take, it shouldn't feel less sexy to see the man put the condom on. And I know for me, as I have like sex with woman, with other women, I make it a point to wash my hands and they do the same. And it maybe wouldn't be a much of a thing that's top of mind if I didn't see Corky's like hands on the pipe, like getting like greasy gunk on it. Uh, but again, this is just a good sex scene. You like, you see the intimacy of the characters. They're so close. And and the dialogue here is also very great. Corky says, you planned this whole thing, didn't you? You dropped your earring down the sink on purpose. And Violet says, if I say yes, will you take your hand away? Corky says no. And then she says yes. <laughs> just incredible. It's like actually just their lips in that shot too. Mm -hmm. I'm just like... It is. And they're hovering right there so close like for so long and you just want them to come together. And, and then they finally do. It's so great because Corky is already fucking her with her hand, but the intimate act is the kiss. Yeah. Kiss me, Corky. Ugh. And of, of course, Joey Pants has to walk right in at this moment. Joey Pants alone is. Oh, this is, is this that moment where he's like, oh, it's dark, dark Fucking in here. dark in here. I Fucking thought I saw Leonardo DiCaprio on my And on he my is wife. so pissed. He is about to go off on her so hard uh -huh. until he realizes, oh, it's a woman. It's a woman. Oh. Surely, surely nothing could have been happening here. Everything's fine. Nothing to see here. Everything's good. Here's 400 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. He gives Corky 400 bucks and like a handshake and is like, all right. A handshake mm -hmm. with the hand, with the hand, and he the says, watering hole. And yes. you can see her, you can see Corky look at her hand before, like she has a moment where she doesn't want to give it to him, uh, the handshake. Yeah. and Looking smug as fuck. Yes. How did he not combust from... <laughs> The look she was giving him in that scene. How is he still standing to survive the and have the rest of the movie happen? Yes. Yeah, male ego. It's a powerful, <laughs> yes. powerful tool. It's a powerful drug. Uh. <laughs> Caesar is very much, he is a character who says every single thought that rolls across his very small brain. You're so very right. smooth brain. <laughs> he's like an never, almond. Yes, he's never thought about the words that are about to come out of his mouth. It's just all coming out. He's like live processing every single thing he's thinking. So later that night, Corky gets into her truck and Violet gets in as well. And Violet apologizes and Corky assumes it's for coming on to her. And Corky says, one thing I can't stand is a woman apologizing for wanting sex. And Violet says, I'm not apologizing for what I did. I'm apologizing for what I didn't do. And that's when we hear that incredible leather when they start kissing. Uh, and then we get the incredible sex scene. Oh, my goodness. She has her little hand up and the little, it's Italian. Anyone can cook. Call me by your name. Is so good and so hot. Like every part of it. So the sex scene, if you have not seen it, which watch it. If you don't see the rest of the movie. Which you should. You should watch the movie. Watch the sex scene. Oh, my goodness. It's How <laughs> many, like, VHSs were just worn out at that one spot? You know what I mean? This was like that one scene where you, like, kept the hand on the remote until in case your parents so the walked thing in. Where it was just like, my daughter is completely fine. Honey, your daughter wore out the, the, the <laughs> our tape of Bound. 
Why did we have that movie? Why was she watching it? Who knows? Uh, who but knows? yeah, so this film, this shot was specifically done as a oneer and is so technically accomplished. Like, mm. mm-hmm. not only is it just sexy mm-hmm. because of what they are doing, but the way it's framed, it spins around them and they had to like coordinate it so that like they're moving the walls of the set so the camera can get where it goes. And mm-hmm. it's a, it's such a technically accomplished shot with so many beats, like the corner of the fitted sheet popping yeah. off the mattress. Oh my God. <sighs> the finger in the mouth, the biting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also see a lot of Violet's hands as well yes. and her like beautifully manicured more hands. hands. Yeah. More hands, more hands. Nails. So good. And there's a great interview with Jennifer Tilly, which if I had more time, I would show you. But uh, she mentions in this scene in particular, she says, what the audience sees is all that was shot. And the Wachowski sisters were very protective of the scene and wanted to make sure that if they lost control of the edit, that the scene wouldn't be hacked away to seem more salacious. Oh, I bet you that's why they did it as a one Yes, that's why they did it as a one because wow. they were specifically concerned. So Dino De Laurentiis, who was one of the executive producers on Assassins, uh, who came on to fund this movie? Like, he, basically, this movie happened because Dino, because of Dino. But they were worried that in the edit, Dino would take this overseas to Italy or wherever and just insert a bunch of porn, like hire two random uh, women to, you know, porno actresses and shoot a bunch of porno shit um, to cut into this movie to make it more sexy, you know, palatable to like a straight audience, I guess, a straight male audience, perhaps, make it more salacious and sexy. And they were adamant they didn't want that to happen. It's unfortunate that they have to think, you know, so far ahead like that, but I think they future-proofed it and it's beautiful. And I'm glad it wasn't a bunch of jumpy edits, finger fucking like blue, blue is the lighting. warmest color bullshit. That's so funny. I was I would love to watch this alongside blue is the warmest color sex scene because I was actually thinking about this. Wh- which one? Um, <laughs> oh, you mean the you're, talking, you're talking about half the movie. <laughs> That's true. Uh, the first time they have sex specifically, that scene is just burned into my head because I was like so appalled watching it. But there's actually like a similar shot in blue is the warmest color and this one, it's like the bird's eye kind of overhead. They don't cut to it for long and bound. But I remember that being one shot that was so interesting in blue that I was like, why are we doing like this weird overview out of body thing during a sex scene? Shouldn't we be like in and close and intimate? But seeing it in this film, I was like, it didn't feel gross. It felt like it was a reminder that like this is a reality in a weird way or maybe kind of like the comic book feeling of it because it was more like a portrait than anything. That's so funny you brought that up because I remember watching it being like, this is filmed kind of similarly, but is absolutely tone-wise 100% different um, and 100% better. Perspective matters. And even though like Lana and Lily were not out and hadn't transitioned when they made this movie, like it, it means something. Like this is all supposition. I can only speak to my own experience and what I think might be going through their heads. But like I don't know how aware they were, you know, of their trans identity or their queerness when they made this movie. I feel like they had to have been aware in some way. But if you haven't had that awareness yet, a lot of us, myself included, when I am like approaching, you know, making art or wanting to speak to an experience that I feel maybe I can't, I couldn't claim yet or whatever, like I want to make sure that I'm doing as much to be respectful and to be accurate Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as possible. And I feel that in this film so much. Like, that uh, that perspective matters uh, of where it's coming from and who's behind the camera and who's running the show. Um, even if they didn't know that like it was 
their experience and their feelings at the time. But yeah, it matters that they cared that much even at that time to to make it that special and treated that carefully. I mean, and you can see that in just their willingness to work with Susie, mm-hmm. um, the, who became the, you know, intimacy coordinator of sorts. Of course, the fact that they were big fans. It's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, hmm. you just like well-informed queer sex, like, and you want to bring an educator who offers help into it? They were taking the BuzzFeed Am I a Lesbian quiz. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real. They're like, oh, shit. 99%. <laughs> this was 20 years before FaceApp, so they didn't have that to crack their eggs. <laughs> I think that it's also crazy that we're like, wow, how revolutionary that they asked somebody who had sex in this way to see if that's the way people would have sex, you know? How, because, how? Like, if I was making a film about, like, a wildlife photographer, I wouldn't just fucking wing it because I don't know how that shit works, <laughs> you know? Like, I think that's um, why this is such a lasting and, and regarded highly for that very reason, because it's very true to life and um, incredible. It's followed very quickly with like quirky, all smiles, like mm-hmm. walking out like the best day ever. <laughs> Until she very quickly hears after she sees a man enter Violet's apartment, she hears Violet having sex with that man. And then you see like a jump cut to quirky and Violet after they've had sex again, and Corky's like getting ready to go. And uh, we have this scene, which I'd like to show you guys. I don't understand. I know, Violet, that's because you can't understand. We're different. We're not that different, Corky. Ah, let's see. This is the part where you tell me what matters is on the inside. And that inside of you, there's a little dyke just like me. No, she's nothing like you. She's a whole lot smarter than you are. Is that what her daddy tells her? I know what I am. I don't have to have it tattooed on my shoulder. That's what he's saying. They don't have sex with men. I don't. Oh, for Christ's sake, Violet. I heard you. Thin walls, remember? What you heard wasn't sex. What the fuck was it? Work. I love when people like someone can write a scene and direct a scene between two people who get mad at each other without yelling yes. and without raising their voices. Oh, yes. you're so right. She's thinking of marriage story. I hate you. I hope you die. What does he say? That. He says that. <laughs> <laughs> this was more powerful to me than that scene from Marriage Story. Uh, but Lizzie, yeah, can you describe quickly like what happens in that scene? So they've just had sex and they're having this conversation while Violet is laying in bed and Corky is putting her clothes back on in a bit of a huff. Um, And this scene stood out to me so much when I was revisiting this film. And I think it's one of the most sympathetic portrayals of a sex worker I may have ever seen on film. I'm sure there are others. But Jennifer Tilly's character knows who she is and she says as much. And I like that she's trying to inform Corky of her perspective without being condemning. And I think there's an interesting correlation between the two of them because at first I was like, oh, they're going to be totally different characters. But at the end of the day, she's right. They are so similar. They're kind of both women on the margins who kind of are able to use their gender performance as a way to kind of like fade into the background a little bit. But because they're able to fade into the background, they can kind of get a leverage on what's going on in the room. And we definitely see Violet utilize that in how she basically puppet masters the whole situation with Caesar by the end of the film. And even Corky, like she's able to kind of blend in and get this job that uh, traditionally a man would have and kind of have access and 
leverage to this whole situation to make it more beneficial for her. And Violet was dealt these skills that just allow her to kind of manipulate the men around her and get what she needs to survive and to get forward in life. And Corky kind of uses that same idea, but with more physical skills and what she can do with her hands um, in terms of like plumbing and everything. Um, I think that it's such a beautiful correlation. And to see like them start here at this rift, like Corky being jealous and not understanding, like, oh, you just have sex with these men. Is that what you call that? And Violet's like, no, this is work. To the full circleness of the end, where Corky like sees Violet use her position to get ahead and to get ahead of the situation that she was dealt and to eventually accept it in the end. And also it introduces the theme of crime being an intimate act, which we see like unfold throughout the film. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting how deep they can get with each other so quickly. I think it's also interesting that particularly in this scene where they're breaking down like both of their roles, where this is a film that's very much like both of these characters in another film where maybe the filmmakers or the writers were more focused on the crime aspects of the film, like on the men and the gangsters and stuff like that. These women would have been invisible Mm -hmm. if they were there to begin with. Like they would have been like, Violet would have been like the wife or the girlfriend who's like going to get the scotch in the background. And only has like a first name. Only has a first name and is there to like be groped or like whatever. And in the similar way, like Corky, like, you know, they tried to change the gender of that character. That if, if that character weren't playing by a man, she would have been invisible you know like or push to the margins and this is like about like the things that like they can kind of get away with and do and they are getting away with like the plot of this movie for so long because none of the men in the room particularly caesar suspect them like know enough to suspect them Mm -hmm. because they're meant to be invisible oh the light's too low and this is the (laughs) double-edged sword that comes with being a lesbian uh, and how you present your gender and each side, whether you're femme or mask, thinks that the other side might have it a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Jennifer Tilly or her character of Violet presents more feminine. And I think that Corky resents that because she thinks that she's taking the easy way out. But what you don't understand is that Violet doesn't have any agency. Yes, she's more accepted by society, but she is at the beck and call of any man that she's in a relationship with. They own her in their minds. Yes, and while Corky has, she's on the other side of the sword where she has given up the idea of conventional beauty in exchange for agency, she's still ostracized by society. So you can't have it all. You have to pick and choose. And I think that that's what she's trying to get across here. And I think it's like bordering on biphobic and Violet has to tell her, like, I'm a lesbian. But even if Violet was bisexual and not a lesbian that's not grounds for Corky to act like a fucking asshole and she calls her out on it too because the whole thing with Corky's character is like oh you're an ex-con well she calls her out at the very end whenever Corky's leaving like oh we'll try not to steal something on the way out Mm -hmm. it's like just because you are labeled this thing does not mean that that is all you are and just because I have sex with men and I'm a sex worker does that mean that's all that I am Mm -hmm. and also the (laughs) The one thing that this film just like nails that we saw in Shiva Baby as well is the idea of like sex work basically being like an Oscar winning performance role. Mm -hmm. Like the way that Violet is acting as a character throughout the whole film to get everything to line up how she wants to is just so interesting and cool. And a thing I loved about it because, yeah, like this it all is like a performance. No, absolutely. It's such a great scene and it's not very long, but they really illustrate so many different dynamics in the gay community and like a couple of lines of dialogue, which is 
incredible. And um, later we see some guy getting beat up at Caesar's house and Violet has to leave because it's too much for her. And um, Specifically, it's Shelly, the guy that she was fucking yeah. uh, yes. earlier. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I'm jumping ahead quite a bit, but it's it's amazing how at a certain point, you know, obviously we're about to see them hatch the plan or whatever, but once shit goes off the rails... Violet's alone. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. she's the only one in that apartment. She's Improbably. the only one that knows what's going on. She's the one that's figuring it out. Like, mm -hmm. And Caesar's not exactly shy with a gun. So it's mm -hmm. like... Yeah, she thinks on her feet. And that's her skill set again, like, as a sex worker, the idea of it being performance. She is selling the performance in, like, absolute time of terror. And so Violet and Corky are back at the watering hole. And Violet tells Corky that she needs to get out. And she wants to start a new life with Corky. And they devise a plan to steal... $2 million from Caesar and the Mafia. I'm going to show you that scene now. You have no idea what you're asking. How much trust it takes two people to do something like this. For me, stealing has always been a lot like sex. Two people who want the same thing. They get in a room. They talk about it. They start to plan. It's kind of like flirting. It's kind of like foreplay. Because the more they talk about it, the wetter they get. Would you please describe that scene? So the girls are hatching a plan. And another scene that I love, because it kind of, like I mentioned earlier, the theme of crime as an intimate act. We actually, it's perfect that you're here, Laura, because in Scream, this was a huge part of the dynamic, is that um, it's based on this idea that like if you're, Hatching this plan together, the emotions are running high. You're maybe saying things you wouldn't normally say. The excitement is up. I can definitely see how that would just funnel you directly into more, you know, sexual chemistry and sexual acts if there's any attraction there. You you need that extra level of comfort and trust for sure. And that only comes with like either like some kind of romantic tension or like a sexual relationship of some kind, like like of a, a negotiation of boundaries and intimacy of knowing the other person and knowing how they're going to react. Yeah. yeah. And maybe it's why a lot of like buddy comedies that are like two guys robbing a bank like feel so gay to me <laughs> is because yeah. like you're right. There is a huge amount of trust and protection and communication that needs to happen between criminals um it's why oceans 11 i always thought was just a little gay i'm like these these people have such chemistry because they're pulling off this insane act that kind of like crescendos in a way that sex can mm -hmm. um I, I think the wachowskis brought out such an interesting um dynamic in that and to have these characters talk about it in a way that's like i usually am like oh show don't tell but the dialogue here is evocative and gorgeous and just enough to get you. And this is the godfather as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> and this scene where she's talking about trust and how this is a sexual act is only made more poignant later when we learn that Corky served five years in prison because her partner at the time sold her out. Mm -hmm. So this is a huge leap for Corky. Massive. I don't know if it's a leap that I would take, but I mean... Violet's so hot that maybe I fucking bud. Well, Violet has a lot on the line, too, because they know her face. Like, yeah. Right, yeah. Dino knows Violet. They they all know her. Um, she's done some things with some of them. Yeah. Um, and not only that, but, like, Caesar, as we clearly see, is not shy using violence to get what he wants or, like, as a reaction to 
you know, not knowing what's going to happen. And so, so often women are the victims of those kind of unstable men. And she is in an especially vulnerable position, Mm -hmm. Um, even if she is not a suspect, like she is in danger. Yeah. 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 The probability of catching a stray is the highest for Violet. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. So the plan to steal $2 million from Caesar is that Corky will be slipped into the apartment by Violet, who will swap out the $2 million for a stack of newspapers. And then Violet will tell Caesar that she saw Johnny downstairs. Johnny Mm -hmm. is a fellow mobster that Caesar hates. Which, just a moment about Johnny that I want to talk about. This is a man who is introduced as uh, wearing an earring. (laughs) 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 Which in the 90s... Sus. Yes, very sus. So there is a a theory that, like... So one of the things that Caesar does not like is how much Johnny, you know, he's a bit of a loose cannon, particularly like the sequence of events that sets this whole plot in motion is that Johnny capped Shelly, who was the one that was stealing the money, and Caesar had to take the money back to his apartment to clean it because it was covered in blood. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing, but I do think there is something more that like Johnny also like supposedly hits on Violet a lot, hits on anything in heels, according to Violet, but... We wonder, given the earring, <laughs> yes. how much of that is a performance. And may, with respect to Violet, might be a performance specifically to fuck with Caesar. Mm-hmm. And so, like, once, like, Caesar has that target latched onto him, he's become so laser-focused in his hate. And I wonder how much of that has to do with, like, his homophobia, as we yeah. see comes out in full force later mm-hmm. once he discovers what's going on mm-hmm. with uh, Corky. Yeah, Violet is so certain that as soon as she turns Caesar's head to Johnny, that the suspicions of her will be off because of this, like, rage that he feels towards Johnny. And so she says, like, oh, I've seen Johnny downstairs, and uh, Caesar becomes, like, immediately very anxious and goes and checks the briefcase and realizes the money has been replaced with newspapers. And he believes immediately, without any other suspicions that Johnny has framed him and that he's going to go down for stealing $2 million. And so Violet and Corky believe that he will run, which is what they're betting on. Yeah. But instead of running, he just spirals out completely. And the mob boss comes with Johnny and Caesar pulls a gun on Johnny to try to get like a confession. Johnny's so fucking confused. He's like Joey Chirby fucking Ani. Yeah. Which Johnny should be noted, played by a very young Chris Maloney. Yes. Law and Order. Yes. Oh, um, that's right. so hot. Yeah. He's really hot. Very hot. <laughs> yes. That's all do it for you, huh? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Who knows? Who, I didn't expect it. Caesar spiraling out. He shoots Johnny as well as Johnny's dad, who is the mob boss. And Caesar's kind of like, ah, scrambling. The police show up. He's like a cornered animal in this Mm -hmm. movie. Like, he's so paranoid and so, like, just freaked out of his mind. And like I said, smooth brain. Every thought, he's he's, he's coming right out of his mouth. He's just id right now. Yes. reactions and no emotion. Pure reactions, yeah. And the thing that tripped my anxiety the most is fucking Violet calling Corky on the phone just don't call her on the phone. This guy's spiraling out in the other room. He hears you whispering. He like comes in, finds Violet on the phone. It's like, oh, are you talking to Mickey? Which is another mobster guy. He grabs the phone. He redials. And because the walls are so thin, he hears the phone ring, the neighboring apartment. Which amazing use of sound, sound of this movie and the fact that that's set up so well earlier in the movie mm-hmm. that, that those walls are so thin and you can hear what's on the other side. It's, But we should also call attention to that phone call gives us the single most like sapphic 
shot in the movie, like that big swoop over where you see Violet with her hand on the wall on the Uh phone and then it swoops over the wall and you see see Corky with her hand on the wall in the same spot and it's just the... The yearning, it's the gayest thing ever. Yeah. It's yearning. But, you know, this at first was frustrating me, like the tone in terms of um, Violet's character and who's in charge, I guess, in the second half of the movie, once all this mobster shit gets rolling, keeps like cresting and waning. Like mm-hmm. you think like, oh, they're going to figure it out and they're on top of the world. They make no mistakes. Caesar acts unpredictably and they lose control and now Jennifer Tilly's character is in trouble. But then they gain it back whenever They're edging you. Exactly. It keeps going up and down and you're like it, it's I don't I haven't watched a lot of mafia movies, but I feel like it seems unique to this story because you don't often have like we were talking about earlier like a marginalized character who's there to offer that like ebb and flow it's always like one powerful mobster versus another powerful mobster where this is like there's so much uh variability that can happen with the character trope that isn't set by the genre that we're breaking you know Mm -hmm. right and other than caesar like everyone in this movie like all of the mobsters all the men are so Mm non-threatening to Mm -hmm. these characters in the movie it's just like it's sort of like by putting us in the perspective of these two women, like they're kind of robbing them a little bit of this power and kind of showing like how silly and trivial all this shit is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like if the mobsters could see themselves as like third party individuals view them, they wouldn't feel so like machismo and like like that they're like these super villains or whatever. I mean, Violet's like, we'll just steal the money, put it in a p- couple paint cans and get yeah. the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah. And they're just men. At the end of the day, they get shot and they die. Mm-hmm. All of them, you know. Yeah. So that's what how the movie ends. Of Essentially, um, Caesar is getting the money from where... I mean, he's tied both of the women up. Throws Corky back into the closet. Yep. Throws Corky into Violet's closet. Yes. Full circle. Bringing yes. it back. Call back. Um, that what did the, she do to you? What did she do to you? Everything you could. Oh, the way I screamed. Oh, I screamed. No, I scrumped. The audience. I screamed. The, I scrumped. The audiences at my last two screening both screamed so hard. I would hit. Like, I like <gasps> hit the ground. I was like, ah! like slap the table. Like it's it's over. It's done. <laughs> what is that? If like girl horniness is watching these women, like whenever one of them gets over on a man, what is, what is that squeal? It's like the. <laughs> Just like the, like the glee. girl glee of just like, <laughs> get him! Uh, it's, it's such like a nice little cherry on top when he realizes he's totally fucked. You know, he tries uh. to get the money back and Violet breaks free. She calls Mickey, who is the only living mobster. She's like, left. Mickey, help. I didn't want he to, but he made boy. me. You know, she tells Iconic. Mickey that Caesar has stolen the money and is making away with it. And she confronts Caesar again with a gun and she's like it's your chance to run and he's like you're not gonna shoot me which I just want to say great amazing set piece like because at this point like he's dumped the can the the paint can on the floor to find the money so the floor is covered in paint Mm -hmm. it's such a dynamic piece of set dressing like you know they see them fumble for the gun and the gun flies through the paint and throws it scatters it across the wall and it's just it's beautiful and once he gets shot like the way that all those blood squibs like splatter Mm -hmm. just splatter into the paint and with like the the orchestral score cresting oh it's it's just it's beautiful it's so beautiful godfather who i think it's really also very endearing that violet is the one to end things you know because corky is masculine presenting but it's still a woman like corky is not a man substitute for violet corky's not saving violet from distress 
like Violet has the gun and she ends things on her terms. And she's the reason that may, they make off with the money. Definitely. hundred percent. So the film wraps up pretty nicely with Mickey believing Violet's lie. And uh, the mob is now looking for Caesar and Violet and Corky get off scot-free in their brand new truck. Brand new, Ugh. bright red, the most lesbian pickup truck you could get in the 90s. Ugh. And it's just so lovely that they won and they're yeah. both alive. And they hold hands and they kiss. And no both one Both in their dies. leather jackets. Yes. They have sex all of like three times and that means so much more to Violet than the five years she had with <laughs> Caesar who like bought her a house and all these fuzzy clothes. Like... That's a lesbian. She was playing that man like a fiddle. Like and I love that. When when they're in bed after they have sex the first time, Corky's like, how long have you been with Caesar? And Violet's like, five years. And Corky says, five years is a long time because that's how much Corky's been in prison in for. Prison. Oh, I and so is Violet. She's been in prison. prison. Ah. And that's, and oh that's where the title of the movie comes from. It's they said that the Wachowskis wrote this movie to be about the boxes that we find ourselves in and that we put ourselves in sometimes, like whether that box is a closet or a marriage or a living arrangement or a relationship or compulsory heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, all of these boxes can be dismantled yeah. if we want them to and if we have the courage to do it. That's kind of what I was getting at earlier when Corky is looking down on Violet for performing femininity in a way that she deems like lesser than it's the illusion of choice that women and lesbians have. And I think that's I think that's beautiful. I think this film is really inspiring. I think it's so freaking great. It's so freaking great. So good. If the Matrix didn't exist, this would be like their crowning achievement. Like <laughs> yeah. I love it. But didn't they directly go to direct The Matrix right after this? Yes. Uh, the Matrix is their immediate next movie. Good God. Yeah. Let's, Jeez. Let's like, talk about what the- a what a one two punch. Yeah. Like just Dude. kicked Hollywood straight in the nuts. Give us a break. Like, take I'm a couple so, years I'm, in between. I'm sweating right now. I'm so I'm girl horny. Not only we changed the landscape of gay cinema forever, <laughs> and then we went and reinvented action <laughs> for the next 20 years. You're welcome. Yes. Thank you to the Wachowski sisters. Yes. This film, no surprise. It was very well received, both critically and from the audience perspective. It was released... Uh, on August 31st, which happens to be my birthday, which feels what? very kismet, uh, at the Venice Film Festival in 1996. It was received well, like I said, by critics. And it's said that this film garnered the Wachowskis the credibility that would further allow them to create The Matrix. With a budget of $6 million, it went on to make $7 million, so not a huge blockbuster, but a success nonetheless. But it's something for for an independently financed film. I mean, they had like Dino De Laurentiis is the one who funded it, um, but the studios wouldn't make this movie. Mm-hmm. Like they took it to the studios and they wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So this is a real teachable moment. Yeah. These films can be made and can be monetarily successful. And there are audiences that are willing and are excited to come see movies like this. Um, so. And to keep seeing it what, 25 years later? To keep getting horny over it (laughs) several of decades later? Still streaming this shit and sweating on my couch. Uh, Put a towel down before you watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Some critics even compared the sisters to the Coen brothers. I think they're better, in my opinion. I love um, where, what's the one with where, oh, brother, where art thou? Love that one. Pales in comparison to this, if you ask me. I, yeah, I will say it is, it is a massive jump scare when you get to this movie and see it credited as the brothers. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which Dude. obviously we know is wrong now, but it's like back then it's just like, whoa, what what's what's going on here? This has to contend for best first feature next yes. history. Yeah. Like Ari Aster's hereditary. Or like Ladybird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh also, you, I, I know audio listeners, you can't see Laura's shirt right now, but it's written and directed by the Wachowski sisters. Did you say it was from this film that they took? Yes. Uh, so this was um, a t-shirt, kind of like, there's been a lot of these boutique t-shirt shops that have popped up in the last several years on internet, like Girls on Top and Super Yaki and all this stuff. Um, this was from a uh, reseller called Mise en Scene, who has since come out as a trans woman. Nice. Uh, who was selling this shirt along with some other ones uh, before she transitioned. And it was very notable, like, along with, like, I think I have another T-shirt from her that is uh, it's, uh, one for Elaine May and Sandy Tan, who is a documentary filmmaker um, that I own. But this one stuck out to me. This was always my favorite um, because they, I loved their films uh, so much. Like, they were really, Im- these filmmakers have been really important to me in ways that I didn't even realize until much later in my life and it meant something to me that like when like even like as I was only like vaguely aware that like they were trans or that they had transitioned or whatever it meant something to me to see like a t-shirt be put out that had corrected that because Mm -hmm. even still a movie like The Matrix like has been remastered and you know re-released and all of this stuff so many times over the years and even still that credit has never been fixed really still yeah um as recently as Two years ago, there was a release, uh, a re-release of the original Matrix in theaters um, to coincide with the Matrix Resurrections hmm. coming out. And it was like a remaster version of it. They're still credited as the brothers. Whoa. And I think that has something to do with DGA rules mm. uh, around credits and stuff like that. Like you can't change them after the fact. But it's what? still, it's it sucks. Yeah. It's bullshit. But yeah, so it was very important to me to not only represent filmmakers that I love, but to see sort of like something be corrected a reclamation in the, in the record sorts. yeah yeah well i fucking love that shirt i'm so glad that you're here with us today and before we let you go we have to do the scores lizzie how do the scores work Ba-da-ba-da-ba. so how the subtextual score works is we each get to rate the film on how gay it is and how good it is on a scale of one to ten and then we average those together to get a single subtextual score all right lizzie we'll have you go first how gay is this movie well, you know, there's a, a 10. That <laughs> was a 10. All right, Laura, how gay is this movie? 100% a 10. 100%. It's a 12. It's a 12 out of 10. 13. <laughs> I would love to give it a 12 or a 13. That's incredible. I'm also going to give it a 10. Okay, Lizzie, how good is this film? So fucking good. So fucking good. <laughs> Watchability, check. Sexiness, check. Gorgina, check. It's a 9. <laughs> Nine. Very nice. I am going to have to give it a nine as well, because if the second half was as gay as the first half, it would have been a 10 for me as well. Yeah, straight up. Laura, how good is this film? I'm giving it a 10. It's a 10 in my book. I think the film itself is just, it's so well constructed. And even if, even if the back half is not nearly as gay as the first 20 minutes of the film, it's still like, I just, I love, I love seeing all the mechanics of the plot play out the way that it's constructed and set up and all those dominoes get knocked down perfectly and satisfyingly and it's just it's just it's a masterful piece of filmmaking to me i can't give it anything less than a 10 i'm very excited because before i even do the math it looks pretty good (laughs) (laughs) results are in and they're looking pretty positive this film gets an overall subtextual score of 9.7 
Damn. That's got to be top that's 10. Up there. It's got to be. It's like, got to be up there. What's right. your highest? Carol ten. is a perfect 10 across <laughs> wow. the board, as well as everything, everywhere, all at once. They're tied. Good picks. I need to rewatch Carol. I need to see it again. It's almost Christmas. Perfect timing. So it's yeah. in our top 10. It's in the fourth place, 9.75, in between the favorite at the third place of 9.8. Very gay. And then yes. Yeah. <laughs> a three way tie at fifth between Brokeback Mountain, being John Malkovich, and Jennifer's Body. Which all have a lot of gay stuff happening. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, Laura. You brought an incredible film. And not to brag, you brought a film that cracked the top 10. So. <laughs> We love to have you here. Can uh, you plug anything for the listeners? Yeah. So you can find me on uh, social media at Laura Onset. That's my handle pretty much on everything. Uh, Instagram, TikTok, Letterboxd, all the stuff. Um, I am a filmmaker. Um, my uh, production company that you can find some of my films and my writing at JenkinsMedia.com. Be forewarned, a lot of those films are credited to some other guy. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know how his name got on them, but trust it's me, they're the, mine. It's the DGA credit. Exactly. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, I actually, um, I have a short film that is that I produced a couple years ago. has been on the festival circuit that is very close to being released. Hell uh, yeah online. It's called How Do I Tell You This? I actually screened it here in New Orleans last night at Movie Mingle. Can we get some snaps for that? Yeah. Hell you are. Yeah. Um, I'm also in the process of trying to get another short film off the ground right now, uh, so be on the lookout for that. And I currently have a feature screenplay that I wrote this year that's being considered for Sundance's development track Damn! for next year. Bitch! Oh my God! We're in the oh presence of a celebrity. Remember, us. Remember the when little you, people. Yeah, I will. <laughs> okay. When it, when I accept my Oscar, I will thank the ladies at Subtextual for starting it all. I will literally melt into the carpet. Oh, that'll be our biggest accolade. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. We yes. love you, and we hope to have you on again if you yes. would grace us with your presence. Yes. Thank you for having me so much. This was so much fun. And if anybody else needs us, we'll be at the watering hole. Yep. But ice all around. Let's go. Yeah, I'll take one. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep this content ad-free, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. See you next week.